Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Fell Pony Podcast. My name's Tom Lloyd, and it's really lovely to have you here again. On today's show, we're travelling across the pond to South Dakota, talking about the practicalities of establishing a herd in another country, genetic diversity, and a whole host of subjects that my guest has written about in her eight books so far. So I would like to introduce Jennifer Morrissey, owner of the Willow Trail Felponies, author, smallholder, and rare breeds enthusiast. Uh, Jennifer, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be with you, Tom. I so admire the work you've done over the years with fell ponies, like the Fell Pony Breeders Association videos, and your most recent venture with Fell Pony Adventures, and now these podcasts. It's really good to have you here as well. As I said in the introduction, you're, you're over in the States, and you set up a little herd of fell ponies over there. So just tell me a little bit about the landscape and where you are, what it's like out there. Sure. So I am in South Dakota, which is uh, just west of the middle of the continent and east of the Rocky Mountains. And I'm li- I, my house is at 4,000 feet and the pa- pony pasture rises from here, similar in, in aspect to a fell to around 44, 4,500 feet. It's very dry here, maybe 14 inches of moisture a year which is very different than where fell ponies are from, but very typical for this region. And we get snow off and on during the winter. Um, Previously where I was in Colorado at 9,000 feet, we got snow solid and on the ground for six months a year. So the ponies and I have made quite a transition in the last couple of years. Could you just describe your, what do you call it, holding over there? Your plot, your farm? So where I am right now, my ponies, my mares are able to run on a hill very like a fell, um, very steep, rugged terrain for most of the year. They, um, it's a little, mu- a little too much for them, so I do restrict their grazing in the summertime and uh, then let them run full time on that hill in the wintertime. And it is an amazing experience watching these ponies navigate that rough terrain and choose the trot most of the time and then the canter when they get to the easy going. Um, choose choose to go high on the hill when they can do without water for a while and then come down or when there's snow to eat and then come down closer to the water sources in the hotter parts of the year. Um, They have run-in sheds that they um, are utilizing for in the, certainly when they're in not grazing. And then I do full in, I do not full on the fell on the, on the hill yet. That may come in time, but I'm not there yet. We have a real active coyote here, herd or a coyote pack here, and we also have mountain lions. And each one of my ponies is too precious to me to risk losing, and so I'm still foaling in in pens. Well, say so I hadn't even that hadn't, hadn't even crossed my mind that you got predators out there because obviously we don't have that over here. So there's another just another dimension to it all, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. And how many ponies have you got at the minute? At the moment, I have ten. I have one stallion and three foals and the rest are mares. Wow, that's really interesting. So, and we'll get to this more, I'm sure, through the through the course of this podcast, just a little bit more about what it's like having a herd of ponies out there. But but before we get there, could you can we go right back to the start and can you when did you first get involved with fell ponies? How did that how did this all happen with you? I was on a small ranch in Southern Colorado and had a Welsh pony cross who would do anything, ride, drive, draft, pack, and I needed something bigger. 
I had also been stewarding, stewarding rare breeds for a while, and I noticed a little article in the Rare Breeds um, Organization's newsletter about fell ponies. Well, at the time, there were about 30 on this continent. Turned out there were six in Colorado, which is the state I was living in at the time. So I traveled to the six hours to go see them, and long story short, six weeks later, I owned two fell ponies. They found me rather than me finding them. Uh, ended up with a breeding pair when I went looking for a using pony. How many of us can say that, right? <laughs> a lot of us. So uh, ended up with Sluttle Rose Beauty who'd been imported uh, previously by that breeder and then a stud colt that she had bred. And did you, did you know anything about fell ponies before that? No. There isn't a, such a pony culture in the States, is there? So, Right, so the working, there isn't a really a working pony culture in the United States. North America, um, since then, the Newfoundland pony has become more um, visible. I, I am sure it was in existence back then, but I didn't know about it back then. The closest thing in the United States that we have to a fell and a working pony is the traditional Morgan. They're a little bit bigger, but they're all they're also that ride drive ride drive draft pack, versatile, smaller, well built uh, equine. And then of course the native peoples had. Um, there's an Ojibwe pony that I've recently learned about in northern uh, Minnesota, I think it is, in southern uh, southern Canada. I can't remember exactly where. And that would have been a native pony to the Americas also. But again, at the time I got involved with Fells, I, there wasn't any rare breeds ponies on this continent that I knew about and just not a working pony culture here at all. So you said you were breeding rare breeds with all kinds of animal. Yeah, at that point I was, I had done ducks and um, started a goat herd, a dairy goat herd, and I'd done turkeys, and I guess that was it at that point. Over here we'd call it small holding probably, is it yes. the same kind of thing over probably, there? Probably, yeah. yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the first ponies you got. So Beauty was 13 when I got her, and I learned very quickly, I tried to AI her that first year from frozen semen, learned very quickly the realities of AI and frozen semen and that it's not always a sure thing. And then I um, bred her, actually a friend of mine bred her to the stallion because I wasn't yet um, aware enough to own a stallion, uh, to have my hands on a stallion. Fortunately, he was really good tempered and within a few months I was able to handle him just fine. Um, and then the next year she did have a filly for me in 2002. And that's where I learned that if you breed a purebred to a purebred, you don't necessarily get the type that you're necessarily looking for. And that's that began my journey of trying to match stallions and mares to get the type that I was looking for. The colt came out of a stallion who was throwing very, very large fell ponies. One of his offspring was 15 hands, I think, when he matured. So it was an early education about the dimensions of breeding fell ponies. Yeah, because the best with the best doesn't always give you the best. Absolutely not. No, you have to have you have to have the mare and the stallion click, and so that's been my journey since then is trying to find mare stallions that'll nick with my mares. So you're you're kind of plowing your own furrow over there. You know, there's there's not many fells around. So where do you start? I think there's a, you know there's a really interesting dimension here. What you are doing is bringing fell ponies to a whole new continent, but on your own. Because over here, you know, there's people we can ring up and we can go and see and we can go and visit. So where did you go for your first help? How did you, how did you get started? 
Yeah, that, that's a very interesting. So those first few years, I traveled from Colorado to Washington State to see a herd. I traveled from Colorado to Pennsylvania to see a herd. Um, and I bought another mare sight unseen from the East Coast, who I had done all of the pedigree research on, knowing she was unrelated to my stallion. And um, she ended up being completely different than I expected because I expected her to look like Beauty. So Beauty was 13. She was mature when I got her. So that's what a fell pony looked like to me. Those stud cold, I thought, well, he'll mature. He was only two when I got him. He'll mature to be look like Beauty. Well, then that other mare showed up. She didn't look like Beauty. And I thought, oh, this is a different journey than I expected. So there were 30 at that time and it's slowly grown. We have 700 on the continent roughly now. So that that's about evenly split. Well, it's probably about two thirds, one third imports versus domestically bred. So I put a few more foals on the ground and from both those mares and wasn't getting what I thought was a good fell pony. So I was ready to quit. But then I traveled to Cumbria in 2005 for the first time. I saw, I don't know, 150 ponies probably between all the breeders that I visited and the Stallion and Colt show. And on the last day, um, second to last day, saw a stallion that gave me hope. And eventually later that year imported his nephew, um, Guards Apollo. And then I started really putting ponies on the ground I was proud of. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, and again, like all of us, you know, you're having to kind of look um, a good few years down the line. I suppose, you know, for where I'm coming from, I'd inherited a herd. So I kind of, you know, the the type was already there. I was just kind of building on that. But you're starting from absolutely from scratch, aren't you? So you said just a minute ago that, you know, you weren't originally, you weren't getting the type you were looking for. And type's one of these things that is really hard to yes. put into words, isn't it? You can look at yes. the ponies and you say, that's my type, but to try and try and express that that's where it gets really tricky it does so you'd got your idea of type by looking at herds and seeing herds you liked well i so a combination so Sleddle rose beauty was the type i liked when i when i decided to buy a pony a fell pony i looked at beauty and i saw the type i liked a leg at each corner um well muscled looking like she could do a day's work in whether under saddle in harness or packing and so then when i went over to cumbria i visited as I mentioned, all these herds, and I said, okay, I like what this breeder's doing, I like what that breeder's doing, and that I could pass on. That's not where I want to go. And then I started thinking about, okay, so how are, what are they doing to get where they're going, and what do I need to do that's consistent with that? And the answer ended up being importing. So I imported Apollo, and then the next two years, I imported a mare each year. And one was a kind of a town end line, and one was a uh, Wands fell bred, but had the Bowthorn prefix. And Joe Lancake, the late Joe Lancake, was a mentor to me during all these years, teaching me, we had phone calls weekly, um, teaching me what he could over the phone uh, about his, what he'd learned in a lifetime with Fells, because he started um, working with Fells, putting them in the coal mines as a 16-year-old. And he'd, there'd be 200 ponies brought into a yard and he'd sort based on confirmation and temperament and that sort of thing. So he had the working fell pony in his mind too. And that helped me a lot. And then I, of course, started doing lots of research on what I could learn about working fells and what it took to be both confirmationally temperament and historically what it, what it took. And I was working, and, and to be fair, I was working other ponies. I had a fjord horse 
and, I, and that Shetland Welsh on the side. And I had a logging and construction company with my husband and we worked those ponies in that company. So I also had on the ground experience with where I was headed. So had you looked at other breeds before you actually decided to go for fells? Had you looked at other breeds? Yeah, I looked at the Norwegian Fjord horse and I ended up with a gelding of that breed. And, and I bought him uh, three months, no, a month before I bought my fells. But my real interest at that point was in helping rare breeds. And so when the fells became available, I decided to focus on them. So you, you mentioned a little bit uh, a second ago, just about starting to collect data. Um, so actually this has become like, this has become more than just a little pastime for you, isn't it? You've done like an enormous amount of work on going through all the stud books and um, taking all that data and trying to trying to build things out of that. So so how did that start? Where to Tell me a little bit about your background. So that started with my first mayor against Little Rose Beauty. And at the time I did paper research on how all the licensed stallions in the, the world and how related she was. And she was related within three generations to 70% of the stallions in the world. So that's where I got the idea that, that from a pedigree standpoint, we have this breeding bottleneck. Well, then eventually we software automated it so that I didn't have to do the um, analysis on paper anymore. And then I remembered that the first day I met a fell pony, I also was told, don't believe pedigrees. Not all of them are accurate. And they, they made allusion to the enclosure scheme and I didn't know what they were talking about at the time, but now I do obviously. And so anytime I do research based on the stud books, I also have to put a caveat in there, which is this is based on the best data we have. It is the data we have. Thank, I'm thankful to the Fell Pony Society for publishing stud books. And you can't go on pedigree alone. I, like I said, I bought my, first, my second mare I bought based on pedigree alone, didn't get type. You got to go on type first. Well, that's hard when you're in the States and you have a limited number and a long distance to travel to see other ponies. What I was trying to do is figure out the stallions that are least related to my mares. And that was that was what started it. And then eventually, you know, 10 years down the line, or was it seven years down the line, I did the rare bloodlines research. And that the first rare bloodlines research in 06 and 07. So let's talk a little bit about that, because that's really interesting. Um, so as you say, there's got to be caveats in there, hasn't there? Why did you find it important to, to look at the rare, rarity or scarcity of particular bloodlines? Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So back in the early 2000s, the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy, which is now the Livestock Conservancy, which is our rare breeds organization over here, published a book about managing rare breeds and both for breeders and from a breed association standpoint. And I get their newsletter. So I was reading all the time about how other people were stewarding rare breeds. Rare bloodlines is one thing that you want to do. Understanding the use of line breeding and outcrossing, understanding type, and understanding how to get type. All those things I was learning about by studying what other breeds and other species were doing, and then bringing that back to the fell ponies. So that led me to not only do the rare bloodlines research, but also to look at the enclosure scheme, to look at the inspection scheme and grading up schemes, because other breeds use those same things to accomplish similar goals. The thing that's interesting about the fell pony, and it's especially challenging for anybody breeding away from Cumbria, as you know, is that we're both a landscape adapted breed, which requires one set of techniques for conservation and a breed standard-based breed, which requires another set of conservation strategies. And they often are diametrically opposed because if you want to increase numbers, you typically have to do it away from that landscape, but how do you conserve type? And that's 
that's a conversation that goes on all the time. I mean, Bill, I've heard Bill Potter say more than more than three times at least. Well, a fell pony is not a, pon a fell pony if it's not raised on the fell. Fair enough. Um, all the rest of us can do is do the best we can with what we got. And and as Sarah Char Charlton has said many times, go back to the fell to get stock to keep the type as we need to. Well, I'm very blessed right now. After Slow Rose Beauty died, I didn't have a fell based pony here. And now I have Dry Barrows Callista, so I have a, another pony born on the fell that I can use as a, a guidepost in some way. And, and looking, at the, looking at the rarity of particular bloodlines, so you're doing that to, to, to make sure you can help um, keep a genetic, genetic diversity, is that right? That's a very good question. So that's, that was my original thinking. And then, the D, and then research that's been done based on DNA rather than on pedigrees says that we have healthy genetic diversity in our breeds. So while the stud books say we, have a, we should have a genetic bottleneck because of um, low population numbers back in the, what it would have been, 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s in that period, I think it is. Based on the stud books, we should have a bottleneck from then. But in reality, when you do the DNA testing based on actual animals on the ground, we don't have a genetic uh, diversity problem. We have healthy diversity in our breed. So my, my interest in doing the rare bloodlines research was originally to make sure we didn't lose any genetic diversity. Well, now it's mostly because people ask. And then the caveat that I also put on it is, you know what, some bloodlines become rare for a reason. They're, they've been selected out by breeders because they weren't considered typical. And I have seen ponies, offspring of ponies on that rare bloodlines list that should have been selected out. That's no problem, I have no problem with that. It's just the way it is with breeding, right? Culling is an important part of the work. So um, you've mentioned a couple of times now about the um, enclosure scheme. So can we can we just talk a bit more detail about that? What you've what you've kind of learned from that? Because we all know we're losing ponies. You know, we're losing herds. The the um, number of hillbred ponies. I'm not sure where the line is down, but I think generally we're still on a downward trend. I think. Well, yeah. And so the most recent research that I've done says that the numbers of hillbred foals being born is got a slight uptick to the right. And so a lot of people are saying we don't have a problem, but there's a more worrying trend from my perspective, which is if you look at the number of foals being born off the fell and compare it to the number of foals being born on the fell, the ratio is changing in a detrimental way for the breed. If, a lot, if we all need to go back to the fell to retain type and there's fewer and fewer ponies on the fell for us to choose from, and there's more and more of us off the fell breeding, we have a problem. So somewhere in there, we have to either solve the problem or change our assumptions. Maybe we don't need to go back to the fell to keep the type. I don't know. But at the moment, that's the current, that's the strategy that's often advocated. So going, let's have this conversation then about the, about the fell pony society enclosure. So as I understand it, I think in the um, late 40s, early 50s, um, the fell pony society set up a fell pony enclosure where uh, members could run their mares with a stallion, or I think sometimes more than one stallion, that had been selected by committee. And that went on, and I believe Sarge had originally, Sarge Noble had um, Heltendale Roma there, and Heltendale Roma was the, the pony that had survived the uh, 1947 winter. But but it didn't last, did it, the enclosure? And it's in, I, find, I think it's interesting just because if we are losing herds um, as we are this year, we've lost another couple, then maybe we revisit the enclosure model, but there were some things that didn't work, weren't there? 
So what I what I found is that the enclosure scheme is considered to have narrowed our gene pool. And from what I've from my research, that seemed valid. It looked like um, several ponies had un, um, outsized influence. But again, you have to look at that in the context of the genetic diversity that's been found in the breeds. So the enclosure scheme does have the risk of narrowing the, the gene pool. And the other thing that to keep in mind is that some people have attributed the emergence of full immunodeficiency syndrome to the enclosure scheme because we narrowed the gene pool. So what you're saying is because there was one stallion being used with a lot of mares, that that's right. the problem. Well, and, and it wasn't just one stallion. It was one stallion and that stallion's son. The effect is that we're narrowing the gene pool. Yeah. So for instance, the enclosure stallion Heltendale Romer, who you mentioned a second ago in 1948, bred 31 mares. And in, in that period, that was a significant number of the mares in the breed. And in 49, the full crop that um, Romer sired 18 foals, which was 37% of the foals born. So you can see that that's pretty significant for one stallion. So there was lots of different stallions that were used. And one of them was Roland Boy. He was a son of Helton Del Romer. And then another, uh, another stallion used was Storm Boy. Well, Mountain Model and Guards Hero were both his sons and they were used in the enclosure scheme. And then Linnell Fox was another pony that was used, another stallion that was used in the enclosure scheme. And he was, um, Storm Boy was behind him as well. And then two stallions, Parkway Royal, he was a son of Parkhouse Victor, another stallion in the enclosure scheme. So um, probably that all happened because of the generosity of breeders loaning their stallions and not everybody had stallions that they were willing to loan or had stallions at all that they could loan. So it was great that those breeders were willing to loan their stallions and the consequence was that we had a narrow, potential narrowing of the gene pool. So what, what lessons could we learn from that then? If, if the conversation of having an enclosure came up again, there would be people say, oh, no, it didn't work for water. I think part of the reason is, you know, who, who's going to manage it? We, obviously, somebody's got to manage it. Right. And then obviously, right. we've got to decide which stallion's going to be used. But let's, let's go over those two problems. We can deal with that. What, what lessons could we learn then about re not reducing the gene pool? Is it just simply looking at finding a stallion that's far enough related each year? Yeah, that's then certainly that's possible. Um, the There are some who would say you have to have a stallion who's fell bred in order to keep um, fell bred instincts in the ponies. I'm not sure because I think sometimes you can bring in outside blood, but that's one way you could do it is you, making sure you had a, a stallion that was differently different way bred. And if you had more than one enclosure, then have those two stallions be different way bred. Don't follow the same stallion year after year would be another, another, um, another strategy. I guess the question I would ask is what goal is the enclosure scheme trying to uh, address? Because back then the enclosure scheme was trying to address the lack of registered ponies in general, not just um, fell running. And obviously today we don't have an issue with a lack of ponies being registered at all. We, you know, we're, we're running in the two, 250 to 350 or more range every year and that's pretty good. In fact, the Livestock Conservancy over here says that it's not the fell pony as a breed that's rare, 
It's, it's considered critical over here, but it's not the fell ponies of breed if you look at the numbers that's rare. It's the fell ponies that are running on the fell that are in danger. Just like in the Morgan breed over here, it's not the Morgan breed that's in danger, it's the traditional Morgan the, with the characteristics I mentioned earlier. Are you ready? This is the bit we've been waiting for. Each week I ask our guests to call the herd home. I'm going to start, Jennifer. I'm going to call out my ponies as if I'm calling down from some hay. It's nearly winter now, not quite, but I'm going to give it a go. And then um, I'd like you to call your ponies. Okay, so I'll go first. Come on! Come on! Home! Okay, over to you. Ponies! Ponies! Come on, girls! I just got my dogs going crazy. <laughs> oh, there you go. I can hear them. Yeah, that's great. I'll keep it in. Yep. Keep, keep the dogs in. If you like what you're hearing, why not come and join the herd at Patreon and help us continue to provide great content for free. As well as podcasts, we've already uploaded over an hour of Felpony films to our Felpony Adventures YouTube channel. So come and join the herd at patreon.com slash felpony. Okay, so here's the big question. Do fell-bred ponies matter? You know, does it matter if we don't have ponies? Yes. Okay, well, go on. Yeah, well, that is a long, that requires a long-winded answer. And the answer is yes, and so do the rest of us. Fell-bred ponies and non-fell-bred ponies matter. The, the biggest reason that non-fell-bred ponies matter is the broader our breed is appreciated, it, the higher our profile becomes, the breed's profile becomes. The higher the breed's profile in England becomes, the more likely it is that we can, as a breed community, do the political influence that needs to be done to allow fell ponies to stay on the fell and to combat the um, rewilding trend, for instance, that's going on. I mean, I mentioned earlier that some non-fell running fell pony breeders considered important to go back to fell running herds. So that means that fell running herds are important. Um, another one is outcrosses. The fell running herds tend to breed to other fell running herds and in terms of mares and stallions. So it's important that we have them have access to outcrosses. Placings at fell pony society shows. At the stallion and colt and breed shows of the 38 ponies that were placed in my study, 71% were fell bred, suggesting that in the eye of fell pony society judges, fell, bro fell bred ponies are more likely to show the best type. And even at the southern show farther removed from Cumbria, the 61% of the champions were fell bred. So again, it sounds, it seems to me that fell bred ponies matter from that perspective. I know we all know the answer to this, but, but, I do get, you know, I do get questions sometimes. Why does it matter? Why do we need ponies? Absolutely, it matters because there's a lot of people breeding ponies away from the fell and they want to know if they matter or not because why, why should fell bred herds get more attention than non fell bred herds? And it's a reasonable question. And that's one of the challenges in this breed that we have to embrace and say we all matter. We're all playing important roles. And we all have a responsibility if we truly believe these ponies are called fell ponies for a reason. We have a responsibility to ensure that the fell pony can continue to run on the fell politically as well as practically. 
Interesting there, you talk about the community because I made a note of this actually. It, one of Somewhere in your book I came across this line that I had to write down, which was, each of us has a place in the fell pony community. So we, we can't all be running hill herds. Um, we can't all have more than one. We can't all be breeding. You know, everybody can have their place and do their little bit to support and keep things moving forward in the right direction. Yeah, and I'll go back to what I said before, which is the fell pony is both a landscape adapted breed and a breed description or breed standard based breed. The Fell Pony Society, as most people understand, is primarily a volunteer organization. We have a couple of paid staff, but it's primarily volunteer. That means that there's limited resources. While our breed motto is to, the, the Fell Pony Society's motto is to keep and conserve, um, and I'm not going to get the wording exactly right. No, foster and keep you are the old breed of pony that's roamed the Northern Hills for centuries. Right. And part of that, based on the type of breed we have, is making sure we have a stud book and we have registrations and all of that. And honestly, with the number of ponies that are getting bred these years, I'm sure that that is a significant uh, source of workload and the regulatory framework within which that happens, which I know when you guys joined the EU became worse, and it'll be fascinating to see if it gets worse or better with Brexit. But at any rate, the Fell Pony Society, as near as I can tell, is consumed by that one side of this breed, which is the breed description side. And so it's up to the rest of us in the volunteer part of our community to make sure that that keep and conserve on the fell happens. And I think it's, I mean, some of the work that you've done, some of the work that Libby has done, um, Nicola Evans is doing that kind of work with her ponies. Um, and other people are doing that work as well in our community. And we just need more of it because the pressures are mounting um, with Brexit, with climate change, the um, the rewilding movement. All of those are putting tremendous pressure on hill farmers and fell farmers and the ability to make money and what role do ponies have in that picture. And I know it's also something else you said that I picked up on, um, which I kind of alluded to in the, one of the earlier episodes actually, was that you know the fell pony has not only been shaped by the landscape, but it's also shaped by the selective hands of its human stewards, which um, is really, it's interesting actually, I had, I had to stop and think about that for a second because, you know, we've all got our own, again, we've all got our own idea of what the pony should look like and hopefully we're all fairly kind of close, but the, 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 the people, the stewards of all of these herds, the ponies, even if it's not just the herds, individual breeders, small breeders, you know, we're, we're all we're all as kind of um, important in the fate of this of the pony and shaping it and protecting it and preserving it as the landscape. So, so one of the things that a lot of people do with their ponies is show them. And that's awesome because it gets the pony out, gets them visible and picked up in places like Native Pony Magazine and other things. And that's an incredibly useful way in today's world of getting the pony some exposure and visibility. The challenge we all have as stewards is making sure that the fell pony that is shown is a, a typical fell pony and is not being changed by the demands of the show ring. Um, and one simple example that I always bring up is from my perspective, looking at history and looking at traditional uses, the trot is more important to this breed than the canter. The trot should be active below, but smooth above, enabling the rider to carry a sick ewe across the withers at a trot across the fell, or to trot 
with the cart to town comfortably and at speed with a little bit of flash and to walk at, and at the walk to walk quickly as a pack pony. But I don't ever see show ponies being shown at the trot or at the walk. They are either shown stood or cantered. And a lot of, I've actually heard breeders who breed for that show ring say that the canter should be long or the, the paces should be long and low. Well, that's not my understanding of what traditional fell ponies should do. They'll batter their feet to the bits on the fell if they have long and low movement instead of active, more active knee and hock movement. So all of us have a responsibility, as you say, in making sure this breed goes forward and it stays true to type. And our challenge as stewards is to make sure that we educate um, judges and people putting on shows that our breed has its unique characteristics and that's what should be judged in those shows. It shouldn't be judged against a horse. What's the market out there even? Who, who's buying fell ponies? What do people want them for over there? Right now, um, the market has been, with COVID, the market has been very hot. And honestly, Her Majesty is a tremendous ambassador. Older women in this country see Her Majesty riding a fell pony at her age and want one, and that's awesome. So uh, where, where while I was originally breeding and able to sell foals, now people are able to buy um, older ponies quite easily because obviously the, the population has grown to that point. So that's what people want. They A lot of them want them for trail, some want them for showing and dressage. Um, and then others are, the very small number want them for small holding work, ride, drive, draft pack. How many ponies did you say we've got now in the States, domestically bred? So in, in North America, there's about 700. I haven't, I just got the most recent stud book, so I haven't done the numbers, but I'm guessing it's going to end up at about 700. So is there a danger that the North American domestic herd becomes something quite different to the Cumbrian or the British native herd, you know, are they going to diverge or are they going to be just one bigger pool? Well, I mean, anybody who's ever looked at an American Shetland and a British Shetland should know that that's a risk. I mean, it's pretty obvious when you look at the two of them. One of them looks like a small horse. The other one looks like a mountain and moorland pony like it's supposed to. Um, the other piece is that in my most recent Rare Bloodlines research, the North American as well as the Dutch herd um, populations seem to be diverging in terms of, and the reason, the way that manifests is um, ponies descended from one of the early stallions on this continent are showing up on the rare bloodlines list when in reality, worldwide, they're not, they're not that rare. But because that stallion's mother had only one offspring, all those ponies in this country descended from him are unique representations of that mare. And so there, and then the same thing is happening in Holland. So is it a problem? It's from my perspective, it's only a problem if type diverges. If, if at some point we become, and this is happening in the Suffolk horse um, population, if at some point we become a valuable source of outcrosses because we've retained type and have available stock that could be shipped back to the UK to diversify your bloodlines, it's all good. But we again, we, it comes back to we got to retain type. One of the other interesting facts I read in your book from your research, you're saying that the small scale breeders are on a downward trend. So is that something we should be worried about? So what I say in my book, what I, what my research has said is not the number of small scale 
breeders is the number of fell-bred ponies from studs with three or less foals in a year. That number is declining. Well, we actually have a larger number. I think we've gained in, in the smaller scale hill breeders in terms of numbers. But the question I ask is, can they take up the slack in the, as we lose the big breeds? And the answer from my research is no, because the number of total ponies that they are breeding isn't making up for the loss of the larger herds. You said that you'd had a non-fell pony and it didn't have what it took to survive out in the landscape there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple. Um, the one, most recent one, the most recent one uh, was scared of her own shadow. And if a chipmunk ran across the road in front of her, she spooked. And you can't have that kind of on edge pony um, at least in my in my environment, it, it was endangering her. She'd put herself into a fence. Now out on the fell, obviously you don't have fences, but I do think that there's a, a wisdom that comes from, and again, I go back to Slottle Rose Beauty. She would definitely be aware of that chipmunk and might prick her ears and stand up really, really straight, but she wouldn't necessarily run away until she was certain it was worth the effort. And this other pony I had, I just didn't feel like she was a good example of a fell-bred pony, that she wouldn't survive on the fell because she just was too spooky. Stewarding fell ponies in America, that's quite a thing. It's a big thing, you, you know, to, to say, I'm gonna set up a herd of fell ponies in Colorado, in South Dakota, wherever you are at this point. You're kind of doing it on your own. There's no real tradition of ponies or working ponies out there um i think you said to me earlier that naughty shetland ponies is that's what comes into people's head absolutely that's the first thing people think when they think of ponies is naughty shetlands the other thing they do is use the word pony when they're really talking about horses and they're just being cute there's obviously quite a few challenges that come with that you've got to import your stock to start with that's going to cost um and you've got to find the right animal You've also got to think each time another animal comes over, you're not just thinking about what it looks like and if it's going to be the right type and if it's going to do well, but you've also got to try and increase the genetic diversity again. There's no point in just bringing over more and more ponies that are really closely related. You've, that's, you've... A really, that's really great in theory. It's really great in theory, Tom, but it doesn't work because over here, import decisions are made on an individual breeder basis. There's no, organis there's no organized attempt um, collectively for choosing importing stock, imported stock. So for instance, we had two half brothers come over more than once. I think we've had two half brothers come over, um, to two different breeders because the, the ponies that were available to be exported from England came from the same person. And that's something else that we deal with that, that you probably maybe haven't thought about, which is there are breeders in the UK who have explicitly told me, I will never export a pony to you. Don't even bother asking. I will not see them go outside the borders of this country. And from a rare breeds conservation standpoint, that is totally valid because every time a pony comes over here, it's no longer available to the gene pool over there. And because we don't have ponies go back across the ocean, one has, but not on a regular basis. We don't even have semen that regularly goes across the ocean, though some has. 
it is two different populations. So you're, so you're basically, once it's left the UK, you're taking it out of that native population forever. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You're basically establishing a whole new native population over there from scratch. Right. Now, and, and to correct something you said earlier, back when I got started, it was possible to buy a domestic bred pony and then have to import. And that's what we did. Now people can set up entire herds that are domestically bred ponies, fell ponies, meaning they're bred over here, U.S. bred, North American bred. It is possible now to set up an entire herd based entirely on North American bred ponies because we have that big of a population now. So let's talk a little bit about what goes on in the States. I, I don't actually know any of this. I should do, but I don't. So I don't even know, you know, are you, have you got your own um, society over there? There are two societies over here, the Fell Pony Society of North America and the Fell Pony Conservancy of North America. I was going to say one's more active than the other, but in the last year or so, even both of them have had a hard time with COVID and keeping going. Um, FPSNA has been the most active and put out two newsletters a year. In each of the newsletters, there was an information from all the farms, information about, um, or stories from, about particular ponies. Um, from the almost the start of the magazine, I've been doing profiles of UK breeders who've been breeding ponies for more than 30 years. And that has given me a chance to talk to a lot of longtime breeders, which has just been a great education for me. And it helps educate, then the stories I write based on that help educate people over here. The Fell Pony Society in North America also um, has a performance program similar to the one in the UK. People get out and can see, we don't have enough Fell Ponies concentrated in geographic areas to have Fell Pony shows. So get your Fell Pony out competing against other breeds and accumulate points and then compete against other country, other ponies in the country or in, in North America. I said at the start, I think you bring an interesting perspective having set up a herd in another country, but also it means that you're, you're looking at everything going on here from the outside with probably quite a different perspective. And I know you've, you've written a little bit about the fell pony and the world, the Cumbria World Heritage Site and actually the lack of any mention at all about the fell pony in any of the publications. Yes. So just wonder if we could talk about that for a little bit. Sure. Well, to be fair, I started out like everybody else, like what you were just saying in the fell pony. This is an av absolute travesty that the fell pony wasn't included in any of the, the um, supporting documentation for the World Heritage Site application. And then I realized that, you know, the fell pony has been missing over hundred years from documentation of what goes on in Cumbria. And then as I started to do a little more research, I had two very knowledgeable people say, wait, stop. The World Heritage Site, as it turned out, is really good news for the fell pony, even if it was never mentioned. And that really set me back on my heels. What are you talking about? How can it be that you don't mention the fell pony, but it's good news? Well, the good news about the World Heritage Site is the the type of landscape that they conserved. And that type is what they call a cultural landscape, which means that it's not the natural landscape. It is the landscape of the agro-pastoral tradition and the industrial history of, of the Lake District. And when you put that, put, put the conservation of that World Heritage Site in those terms, the fell pony stands up tall and proud because of its involvement in the industrial history of the Lake District and the agro-pastoral traditions of the Lake District. And so now what our job is, is to make sure that everybody understands the fell pony's role 
in the industrial history of the Lake District and the agro-pastoral um, culture of the Lake District. And so now my efforts are in documenting um, the pack horse history, for instance, of various places in the Lake District. And I, it's a big project and I, I've done um, a little bit on Furness, a little bit on the Dudden Valley. I'm researching Eskdale right now. Um, as you know, I took a pack pony trip across Burn Moor when I was there in 2015, thanks to Christine Robinson. And um, that was a huge um, education, a first, first person education about the history of these ponies working in that landscape. So we're winding up now, Jennifer. Um, I've got three quick questions for you. First question, ride or drive? Oh boy. Um, if I have to choose one of those two, then it would be ride. I like pack. I, I bet you don't give me the option of pack or draft, and I've done more of those two things Ooh. than I have driving. Gone out of ride, drive, pack, or draft? Draft. Oh, there you go. What have you done? Go on, tell me what well, you've done. Well, in, in the fell pony, I've been so busy breeding that I haven't done much more than just moving manure with, a, with one of my mares. But my previous ponies, I skid logs, I moved brush, we packed uh, fencing materials. Um, I got a whole book written about what I did with them, so. Cool, cool, okay. Uh, second question, favorite pony or line of fell ponies in the history of the breed? Well, I mean, it's unfair for me to say anything but the Sleddle ponies only because I started with one and um, I've been really blessed that recently one of the members of that family has been in touch with me. So that's exciting. Oh, I like a good sled ale as well, so. Okay, third question, black, brown, bay, or gray? Mm. I'm, I have to admit that I love the look of the bay ponies on this landscape. When I was in Colorado, the black ponies looked awesome against all that snow. So for now, it's, it's black, black or brown, um, brown with black points. So Jennifer, it's been um, a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, you know, I think you've just got a, it's a really interesting, unique perspective doing what you're doing over there well, thank you uh, and and having you know so much of a focus on what's going over here i mean i think you probably know as much as most of the people over here as well and what's going on so you know it's been really interesting and um lovely to talk to you and i hope one day we'll get to meet you in person because this is as close as we've got so far yep i i hope we get to too tom and i hope one day i can take a pack horse trip with you it's on my bucket list okay well look um I hope you get. I hope you have a good winter. I hope it's not too hard, and um, look after those ponies. Thank you. Take care, Tom. Thanks so much. And you can find a copy of Jennifer's latest book, Fell Pony Observations, Volume Two, over on Amazon. Listening back to that conversation has helped me realise the importance of the whole fell pony community in the future of the breed. We all have the best interests of the pony in our hearts and we all have an important part to play in promoting the breed throughout the world. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to the show. If you liked it, please do me a favour and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you really liked it, do me an even bigger favour and leave a review. It will really help us get the word out. A huge thanks to my patrons who make all this possible. Charlie, Emma, Kate, Chris, Hannah, Alistair, Chris, Caroline, Kate, Jenny, Joe, Easy Horse, Willow, Rath, Mandy, Sue, Katie, Rue, Kalina, Matthew, Sue, Jane, Jess, Heather, Kim, Jennifer, Karen, Ruth, Timothy, Jennifer, Sarah, Helen, Misao, Samantha and Dobby. I am eternally grateful for your support. So why not come and join the Patreon herd and help us keep this podcast alive? Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter 
and you'll be able to find more episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Tom Lloyd, and you're listening to the Fell Pony Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>